This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello. Welcome to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. Today's guest is Will Berard Lucas, an incredible wildlife photographer from the UK. He just released his brand new book, Land of Giants. It's unbelievable. I could not recommend it more highly. I'll read the book synopsis to provide some perspective. Deep in the heart of a vast wilderness, some of the rarest creatures on earth still roam. Living relics from a bygone era. They are the last of Africa's great tuskers. For the first time, these elusive elephants have been subject to an in-depth photographic study and are now immortalized in this book. Will Berard Lucas, in partnership with Savo Trust and Kenya Wildlife Service, spent months photographing elephants in all corners of the Savo conservation area. Using the latest technology, including his innovative remote control beetle cam, Berard Lucas has captured an intimate glimpse into the lives of Savo's elephants and a spectacular photographic record of some remarkable individuals. Against a backdrop of escalating human-wildlife conflict and the ever-present threat of poaching, this book brings a message of hope, that these giants are still out there and they can still be saved. We talk in depth about his experience making this book, as well as stories of Ethiopian wolves, painted dogs, orangutans, wild pandas, and so much more. It was a really fun conversation I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here it is. My chat with the one and only Will Berard Lucas. Well, Will, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm super excited that you're taking the time to chat. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. I've been following your work for a long time now and kind of looking through in preparation for this chat. It was really difficult for me because you've been so many places and there's so many stories behind the photographs that I wanted to learn more about, but for the sake of uh, having some direction and some vision, I know I had to narrow that down. So, And also for, for the sake of relevance in terms of your work right now, I really wanted to start focusing on elephants. So can you talk a little bit about the project you're working on now and releasing soon and yeah. what the genesis of it was? Yeah. So this project, I've been working on it for over a year and so... It's been consuming a lot of my time, but I decided for this one that I would keep it under wraps and release it all when it was done at the end. So uh, this is really one of the first times I'm even talking about it. And oh, wow. basically, yeah, I've been uh, in Savo in Kenya, and I've been there just focusing on elephants. And uh, I've been working there in partnership with a conservation organization called the Savo Trust. And our aim is to together really put together a book uh, that sort of celebrates these elephants that they have in Savo. And uh, the book is then, you've got the aim of helping them out, helping them mm -hmm. achieve their goals, but also obviously an output for my work from the year. So yeah, I've been, uh, spent several months in Savo and uh, yeah, had some incredible experiences. And uh, now at the final stages of getting this book ready, which I'll uh, be releasing soon, hopefully about the time that this podcast comes out. Fantastic. And yeah. 
I'm assuming you have the choice to do a lot of different focuses on species or geographies. Why Savo specifically? So this all came about, I guess, quite serendipitously. I've got a friend who I worked with previously on a, another really fun project, an Ethiopian wolf project. And he was the main uh, guy there running that conservation program. And he then moved to Kenya and we stayed in touch. And uh, through his work in Kenya, he got to know uh, Richard Moller, who's the CEO of the Savo Trust. Mm -hmm. And Richard happened to mention to him that he wanted to uh, you know, document these amazing elephants while they, while they were there. And uh, you know, he felt like it was almost a race against time to photograph some of them before they uh, you know, disappeared or, or died of old age. So uh, my friend Chris mentioned to him that you know, he'd worked with me. And, uh, and so through that, we, we got connected. And it was probably a year or so um, chatting before we uh, got to the stage. I think the catalyst was this, this quite famous elephant got poached um, in Savo. And, uh, you know, we, we realized, you know, it's got to be done now because the longer we leave it, who knows, uh, who knows, maybe, maybe these elephants won't be around much longer. Uh, I'm specifically referring to these elephants with really big tusks, uh, these big tuskers. And there's about 20 of them in Africa, um, 20 that would have tusks that each weigh over 100 pounds. And eight of them at the moment can be found in Savo. So it's pretty much the last sustainable gene pool where there's a few of them uh, and where hopefully these genes can be saved. So yeah, it, it sort of feels like, you know, if things don't go well, this could be the last opportunity anyone has to document these elephants. And so we decided, you know, we've just got to make it happen. And so I really pretty much dropped everything in terms of the projects or any other projects. And I, I even bought a car in Kenya so that I could be more flexible and spend more time out in the field and uh, just focus on this project. So I've spent a good few months just just in Savo, just photographing elephants, really. Wait, so each of the tusks weighs a hundred pounds? Yeah. So it's cut, like this concept of a hundred pounder came mm -hmm. from the hunting days, where you know that was what people really wanted when they went to Africa was to shoot a hundred pounder, and so they were always you know rare, but there used to be a lot more of them. Now, yeah, they're so hard to come across, and as I say, probably only. 20 or so left. And in the last three, four years, uh, probably that number is down by a third. So they really are, um, you know, pretty, pretty rare these days. Well, and to put that into perspective, a, a fact that I read, I think in some of your work was that there's 13,000 elephants in Savo, right? And yeah. of those only eight or nine of those are big yeah. tuskers. So exactly. when you get a sense of the percentage, it's a very small yeah. pool. Exactly. Even in this this sort of uh, stronghold of elephants it's only a tiny fraction that ever get number one old enough you know number two have the right i guess nutrition and diet and then they obviously have to have the genes as well and because they're so highly prized by poachers previously by hunters you know these genes through the years through the decades are becoming rarer and rarer because these are the first elephants that get targeted you know even 200 years ago by the by you know ivory hunters or whatever so uh, yeah, it's uh, a very much a dwindling gene pool. In some places where I was focusing a lot of time previously in, in South Luanga in Zambia, um, actually through this, I guess, unnatural pressure on uh, on elephants with tusks, there are now a lot more elephants that are actually just growing up without tusks because that gene obviously gives them such a survival advantage. So I think it's a trend, uh, you know, in a lot of places that, uh, you know, these elephants with big tusks or even tusks at all are becoming harder to find. And do you have a sense 
back before poaching and hunting was a big issue? Was it much more, obviously it was more common to see it, but was it still rare to get to that hundred pound size or is it something where- Yeah, I wouldn't be able to tell you, you know, this number of elephants grow to become hundred pounders, but it was certainly a lot, a lot more common 200 years ago. And I would imagine, you know, an old bull elephant, um, you know, with the right diet and stuff would probably, in areas where they got those genes, you know, would probably have a pretty good chance of becoming a hundred pounder if they're left to their own devices. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just that, yeah, for 200 years they've been targeted. So it's, uh, it's amazing really there's any left, I'd say. I would imagine that at this point in time, those nine are being monitored rather carefully, kind of almost like a rhino in yeah. South so Africa or something. They are and they aren't. It, they So the area that they're in is 40,000 square kilometers. So that's an area equivalent to the size of Switzerland. It's like a whole country and there's eight or nine elephants and they are literally dispersed over this whole area. And a lot of this area you can't get around by road. There's no roads in it. Uh, the tourism area is a very small fraction of, of the Savo conservation area. So it's impossible to patrol by vehicle. So uh, what the Savo Trust does is they they do have this big Tusker project where they uh, do prioritize these elephants because by protecting them, you're, you're, you know, by default protecting all the other elephants in the area mm-hmm. that these elephants found. So they do focus on these big Tuskers and they'll be flying patrols every day trying to put eyes on each elephant as often as possible and you know patrolling the area looking for signs of poachers and things uh but yeah one plane eight elephants the size an area the size of switzerland you know there's only so much that can be done with limited resources so they're doing fantastic work but you know it just takes a lapse of a few hours and a poacher can slip in and take one down so uh right it's a really tough tough battle they're fighting can you set the scene as to what that Savo area looks like like what is the geography like is it like a deep bush or is it pretty open like if a poacher were to come in is it easy to kind of lose them when you're doing the aerial um yeah so yeah it's pretty thick bush it's not a very easy place as a photographer to work because there is often quite a thick bush to try and sort of get clear shots through and so on the land you yeah, you wouldn't see a poacher if he was hiding in a bush um, a little way away. So from the air, you're looking for telltale signs like, a, you know, at dawn, you'll be looking for a little plume of smoke that might indicate a cooking fire or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the scouts on the ground will be looking for things like um, footprints and stuff, you know, tracks in, in the earth that, where poachers might have gone. And a lot will also come from um, local intelligence. So there's informers in in the villages around the area who are paid to keep their you know eyes and ears open and if they get wind that maybe uh poaching parties going in you know maybe tip off the right people so mm-hmm. uh there's a sort of multi-pronged approach because um yeah if you just try you know and one method it's it's you know very easy i guess to avoid they also have rhinos in that area and there the approach is um is a bit different in that they're able to contain the rhinos in one area and then intensively patrol that area so there they do have permanent uh i guess uh you know one or two scouts that will camp out on top of a hill with binoculars and just you know 24 hours a day are scanning the the ground looking for signs of poachers and things Uh, but because the rhinos don't move around that much they have Mm -hmm. their territories that's that's feasible these elephants they can go you know, in the course of a few months, they could roam an area that's, you know, a thousand kilometers uh, across. Oh, so really? It's, uh, yeah, and you can't really contain them if, you know, they would 
barge down any fence that you try to put in their way. So uh, it's not really an approach you can take with these elephants, particularly these old uh, canny bull elephants who who just uh, you know go where they want. In if the aerial surveillance is going on and they find a group of poachers, what is the typical uh, approach to stopping them? Is it always yeah, through force so, or do they ever arrest? It, what is yeah, the they'll typical? always try and arrest. So what they'll do, if they spot them from the air, you they will mark the GPS position of them mm-hmm. and really try not to tip off the poachers that they've been seen. So, you know, if they, if they look down and see a, a, a fire, they won't circle it. They'll mark the location, fly off as if they haven't seen it. And then the uh, Kenya Wildlife Service scouts will come in in a chopper or come in on the ground and try and ambush them basically and, and catch them and uh, and take them to trial. So I think it would only uh, sort of get into a gunfight if the rangers were were fired on by the poachers, but otherwise they'd try and arrest them. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, when you, sorry, I think a lot of the time though that they do get caught. That so that's one scenario is they go in while they're in the park, catch them. Uh, before they've killed an animal or while they're they're waiting to, to ambush an animal. But then often I think they're arrested when they're trying to offload the ivory or when they come back to the village and hide the ivory, you know, bury it under their their bed or something. And uh, that's when a tip-off or something means that the, the, the scouts can go in and arrest them uh, mm-hmm. with the ivory. But obviously it's then too late for the elephant. Do you feel optimistic at all that things are shifting in the right direction in terms of the protection yeah. of these animals? I think it's very optimistic that they're there to start with. So I think through the book, that's really the message we're trying to get across is it's not too late. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of people, you know, when, when people see these pictures of these animals, you know, they're amazed that they, you know, they're even still out there. So it's very optimistic from that point of view. And there's plenty still to save. There's these eight big tuskers, but there's about 20 emerging tuskers who within the next 10 years could become big tuskers. So, you know, with some concerted effort, um, you know, for the next decade, then, you know, this number could go up. So I feel a lot of hope that uh, in this area, it's got a lot going for it because it is this massive area, 40,000 square kilometers of basically elephant habitat, which is a yeah. fantastic resource. So, um, you know, the habitat's there. And if just poaching can be kept at bay, then, uh, you know, there's enough space for these elephants. And I think that's what's uh, what's key. In <clears throat> do you have any particular approaches or methodologies? I know it's a multi-pronged approach, but that you think will be kind of the next step or where listeners, if they wanted to donate or could focus their time and attention where they should be, like which efforts are making the biggest impact? <clears throat> yeah, so the guys I've been working with, the Savo Trust, are the, uh, you know, they're really, they're small, but they make every dollar count and uh, really doing very valuable work in uh, in securing Savo and also working with local communities to to give them what they need so that they don't need to you know plunder the resources of the park so they are you know helping them out building them wells or or helping them deal with um you know if the elephants are coming and raiding their crops you know maybe helping them come up with solutions to mitigate uh, some of those um, issues so Savo Trust and they often work hand in hand with Save the Elephants another um, NGO and checking out either of their websites, you can uh, you can find out a lot more about the issue. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So going into to your work when you're when you're there, if it's this massive area the size of Switzerland, um, yeah. and and a lot of it's pretty deep bush, how did you go about finding these tuskers and photographing them? And yeah. on, on what was the average frequency that you could even find them? 
Yeah, so um, if I'd been working on my own, I would have had zero chance of finding a single one of them. So really, it was only by teaming up with the Savo Trust that that this project was possible at all. And because they're flying every day patrolling and, you know, they're seeing these, you know, trying to find these elephants, you know, year round, they have a pretty good idea of roughly where to find them. So uh, the one that I spent the most time looking for was the biggest of all. Um, his his sort of code name is LU1. And uh, to find him, they, they would fly the area that he was last seen, slowly sort of working out from the last point he was seen, peering down. And for a couple of hours, you might be just, you know, doing cross sections of the earth, trying to find him. And then eventually, if he is spotted from the air, and when you do spot him, he's unmistakable with these huge gleaming, mm-hmm. you know, tusks that, that sort of glint in the sunlight, um, then take his GPS position and try and get in on the land, you know, in a in a vehicle or something to uh, to get some clear shots on the ground. And often he would be in such thick bush that that would be impossible. You know, we might be trying to drive towards him through the bush and the car's just scraping with bushes each side. He's going to hear us a mile away. Right. So it was often really hard to get close to him that way. Um, but yeah, we might, we might try, fail one day, fly again the next day, then not find him for a few days because he was I don't know, maybe under a tree or something. And that was the time he flew over or whatever. But um, probably found him on average once every three days from the air. And then we had a few times going in on land, um, not really able to get close enough for the shots I wanted uh, before eventually we actually ditched the car, went in on foot in an area that wasn't so thick that we would be on top of him uh, by the time we got a clear view of him. And uh, that then gave me enough enough of a clear shot mm-hmm. through to him to get... Uh, the first shots of him and then over the course of the year I, I had more opportunities to photograph him but certainly getting getting shots of him for the first time it was really <laughs> uh, at that stage I was thinking you know how am I going to get a whole book of photos when it's taking yeah, me yeah, yeah. You know, weeks <laughs> just to get one shot of this guy but um but yeah it did get easier as the through the course of the year their behavior changes a bit they move into different areas based on where the best food is or where maybe the females are so uh, later in the year he moved into a more open area where I was able to get a lot more shots of him. I wonder if he recognizes that he's famous. Like there must be some part of him that's like, well, these things are flying every day over. And yeah. when I do hear them more, oftentimes they're followed by these cars and people staring at me. For no, a the thing bit. is, he, he's not that famous in that he's so hard to see that tourists don't know about him or don't know oh, really? to go and try and find him. And so the Savo Trust see him every day from the air, but they probably go in on the land, you know, once a month maybe to, because he is just... A pain to try and see on the land so that you know they can sort of keep him safe from from you know seeing him from the air making sure they're patrolling that area they don't necessarily need to see him on the ground it's only when i join them and i then need to get close enough for a photo that we end up really trying to get close to him mm-hmm. so yeah he lives most you know i think i wouldn't be surprised if he goes several months at a time you know certain times of year without really oh, coming cool. across a human on the land yeah uh, Did- they, yeah they live in pretty remote areas some of these elephants when you got off and were on foot, was there any fear of, um, well, one, are there predators in the area, like lions, and also like charging of the elephant? Was there any of that yeah. kind of adrenaline flow? So these elephants, um, I mean, first of all, I was going in on land with, uh, on foot with uh, Richard Moller, the CEO of Savo Trust, who really knows what he's doing. So I'm, I, I pretty much don't have any fear because I'm pretty sure, you know, if he knows what he's doing and he's happy to do this and then I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be happy to do it. So yeah, I don't, I don't really 
uh, you know, I don't think he's going to do anything that's dangerous. So yeah, I yeah, pretty much yeah. put my faith in them that what we're doing is going to be okay. So yeah, we'll, you know, sometimes walking quite a long way on foot and yeah, there's a lot of other wildlife, but most of these animals, lions, hyenas, whatever, they, they run. It's only if you're really stupid that you'd ever get into any sort of danger with these animals. Mostly they don't want anything to do with people. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's not really, you know, you just have to obviously be careful where you step. Don't step on a snake or something, but right, right. it's not, it's not, I, I don't feel it ever, you know, threatened. So, uh, but then it comes to the elephant himself and this, these big tuskers. I think they've only really got to that age by being really canny and smart and, mm-hmm. you know, not being, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty streetwise animals. And so particularly when they're in a dangerous area, they'll know that, you know, if they're in an area perhaps where there's not a lot of tourism activity, not a lot of people or maybe near where there's villages you know they know when the area is a bit dodgy and uh, the first time we went in on foot the the elephant was in one of these areas and it's amazing how their behavior varies if you come across them in a safe part of the park they can be really chilled out and you can get quite close and they don't care but in this area an area where he's edgy anyway and we were coming in on foot um, he was pretty touchy so we had to we had to come in so he couldn't detect us. We'd come downwind, so he couldn't smell us. We had to be completely silent. So, you know, really watching every step, not, oh, to, wow. not to snap a, a branch or something. And then we always had to be aware of, you know, if he comes at us now, where are we going to go to to get out of his way? So, you know, you've always got a sort of escape route planned mm-hmm. and, and you know, always aware of what he's doing. The other thing is he's not on his own. He's got a couple of younger bulls with him and they are really they can be you know less predictable than him often so while you're focused in on him you've also got to be aware of what these other elephants are doing and make sure you're not getting you know your escape route isn't getting blocked off by one of them so uh, sometimes it's just not possible to go in on foot because there are these other elephants that just make it impossible to get a get a nice route through to him but this first occasion i did manage to get him we were able to basically see which way he was heading get in front of him and just wait with a nice open air in front so that when he came into that area there's a clear shot through, but he wasn't so close that he would, you know, on top of us already. So, uh, yeah, we did that. He was just kept coming. I was basically crouching on this, just in the sort of, uh, just below this bush. So the bush was breaking up my outline. Um, and he was just coming straight towards me. I was sort of shooting until the last possible moment when Richard <laughs> said, okay, now we got to back off. And the moment we moved, he then sees the movement. Um, they don't have the best eyesight elephants. It's mostly um, sight and uh, sound and smell. So it was only when I moved that he saw me. But uh, right. then then he's like, whoa, what's that? He paused for a split second before doing this mock charge. Uh, by that point, I was already backing <laughs> off. And so right. he, he sort of pulls up just short of where I'd been crouching, uh, you know, flaps his ears and then just melts off into the bush. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool experience. Um but uh, yeah, I, I put my my trust in Richard that uh, yeah. he wasn't going to trample me to death. Do you know if they're held in any higher regard within the elephant community? Like, are is he like a Brad Pitt of attraction or like revered yeah. like a David Attenborough or something like that within his crew? I think so. Crew? Like I did see, I, I went back at a different time of year when he was in Must and that's when they're really aggressive and yeah, it's when they're really pursuing the females. And yeah, there weren't, a lot of other elef- other bull elephants, really, I, I don't see many interacting with him. I think they do give him a wide berth. Right now, he is in his prime. Mm-hmm. I guess as he gets older, he sort of maybe gets pushed out by uh, by younger males. But 
right now he's yeah the the other males certainly respect him yeah sure. is yeah. there a moment then, that sorry go ahead no 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 again i was gonna say is there a moment that sticks out to you throughout the 18 months that you were shooting this book as like the most memorable or the the most beautiful experience that you had in the Savo. yeah yeah so the project lasted 18 months i wasn't actually in the field 18 oh, okay. months i'd sort of go in and out uh, so it's probably a total of maybe three months four months with the elephants uh, over the course of the year and a half but um yeah okay so there's this other elephant who's actually a female but she has these amazing tusks that reach right down to the ground and because the female's bodies are smaller i'd say her tusks her you know huge long tusks on this smaller body are almost more impressive in a photograph so oh, and wow. and i'd seen photographs of big tusker males before and i sort of knew what to expect there but um, i'd never seen photos of a, of a cow elephant like this one and uh, richard told me about her and you know we we obviously uh, wanted to photograph her um, but the first time I saw her, I was just absolutely blown away. And a, a good number of the photos of the book in the book, and certainly my favourite photos, and even the cover of the book is this one uh, particular cow tusker called uh, Mudanda, who, uh, yeah, you just, I mean, there's no way to describe it. You just got to see the photos of her to believe it. It's almost like looking at a mammoth, you know, these yeah. tusks are so incredible. Yeah, I, I know the photo you're talking about. And to listeners, I was lucky enough to see the, or at least the draft of the book before it came yeah. out and it's stunning like oh, thank I, you. I thank can't you. wait to see it in its final form because I want that on my coffee table but uh, yeah, yeah unbelievable yeah I mean for, it, my job was easy the privilege of being out there you know being able to photograph these elephants you know taking the photos is easy but it's just the access to these elephants and the fact that they're still there is what uh, what makes a book I guess I've noticed you've spent a lot of time in different areas of Africa. Do yep. you notice vast differences from elephant population to elephant population, depending upon the governance of each country? Yeah, definitely. I think so. Yeah. So I did a project in Namibia, uh, in the Northern bit between Angola and uh, Botswana. There's this strip called the Zambezi strip. Okay. And there they'd had quite bad poaching over the years and not a massive amount of tourism. And the elephants there, you know, they are super aggressive. I remember this one time I was I was just driving and went past this this thicket and this elephant charges out of the thicket and chases my car down the road as I'm oh, trying to wow. drive away. Really? Yeah, just uh yeah, super aggressive. And uh yeah, I mean that's that's one extreme. Then you go to an area where they're, you know, well protected and safe. It can actually be a really geographically short distance away. So in the Okavango Delta, just south of where I was. And there, you know, you can drive past an elephant within touching distance and they just, uh, you know, don't don't care at all. So uh, very much based on their, I guess, their experiences of humans is how they'll often uh, respond towards towards us. And do you think Kenya, specifically in the Sava region, is it one of the healthier elephant populations in yeah, well, Eastern Africa? Yeah, definitely. It's such a big wilderness area with such a good elephant population. They used to have, I think, I'm plucking the, the figure from my memory a bit, might be wrong, but I think they used to have about four times more elephants in the 60s. And then there was this really bad poaching epidemic in the 70s and 80s where the population was completely uh, you know, decimated. I, I, it was much lower than it is now even. Then in the 90s and since then, 
the elephant populations recovered, but it's still not at the levels it used to be. Uh, the problem now in a lot of places, not so much Savo because it is so big, but in other places where there is this healthy population of elephants maybe, but it's what's around the national parks that's a problem. So what's not being protected, the areas around the national parks, people have moved in, they're growing crops and things. Um, and it basically maroons the elephants in these protected areas. Mm -hmm. But historically, elephants would have been very nomadic. They would have, in the dry season, they would have you know, wandered far and wide in search of food. But now they really are just stuck in these national parks, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, at some times of year, if the national park, you know, it's very dry and there's not a lot of food, their only option really is to raid crops. And, and that's when you get, you know, a lot of problems with human wildlife conflict. So, yeah, yeah it's a it's a tough challenge. I want to back up a little bit and learn a little bit more about what got you into this work in the first place. I saw that you're from the UK, but you yeah. spent a lot of time in Tanzania when you were a kid, which... I don't think yeah. it's like the the normal backstory of a no, person. So, so, yeah, we lived there for three and a half years when I was really little. So uh, like primary school age and pretty much my first memories, really my early memories are, are from that time living in Tanzania. And ever since then, safari wildlife have been a massive passion of mine. So as long as I can remember, really, uh, you know, my my. Yeah, fond memories of, of going back, uh, going on safari with my parents back in the day in the 80s. So uh, that's definitely where the love of nature came from. Um, and growing up, you know, I'd you know, consume any natural history documentary, anything uh, to do with the natural world I was interested in. But I never realized or even thought to, you know, that I'd be able to make a, a living out of doing anything with wildlife or nature. Um, and then it was when digital cameras came along that I got mm -hmm. into photography. Before that, I'd, I'd dabbled in it a bit, but I never really took off because I never had that ability to see the results as I was taking them. So by the time I took a photo, got the role developed a week later, I'd forgotten what I'd done to take that photo. And I just, right. it didn't, it didn't happen for me. But then the moment digital came along and I was able to get that instant feedback and there and then experiment with settings to get the shot right, that's when I really started to, uh, you know fall in love with photography and that was while I was at university and I always tried to travel as much as possible during my holidays and things and naturally I was traveling to to places to see wildlife and so very soon I found I was focusing on on you know wild subjects uh, in my photography as well and so within a year or two of picking up photography I was really focusing in on wildlife photography and uh, yeah built it up from there that's how it all started was there a moment, kind of an inflection point where you were like, wow, I can really take this from a hobby to a profession? Yeah, there, I guess there were a few along the way. So um, I've always um, done a lot, you know, dabbled in the internet, building websites and that sort of thing. So very mm -hmm. early on, I had a website uh, to show my photos on and uh, and sort of start getting my stuff out there, building a bit of a following. And so I remember making my first sale in 2004, and that, I guess, start, started me on this track of, you know, putting my images online a bit like a stock library on my website and right. people finding them through Google search and things like that, gradually building up um, some revenue that way. And uh, and yeah, over the, the years that followed, so the next six years, I was, I guess, quite intentionally building up my online presence, building up my following, building up my 
revenue stream until it got to a point in 2010 where I was able to just uh, uh, sort of built it up to a point where I knew it wasn't a complete punt in the dark to uh, try and make a go at it. And so I just, right. yeah, in 2010, that was the point where I I decided, you know, I'm going to try and make it happen and left what I was doing before and just uh, started doing the photography full time. And fortunately, I haven't looked back. But I think the point that I knew I could do that was the first, um, was in 2009 was the first time I used Beetlecam, my remote control camera buggy. Mm -hmm. And that really blew up and got a lot of attention. And I guess really kickstarted a lot of things in terms of um, yeah my reputation, the sort of licensing images and that sort of thing. And so that was probably the, the, the biggest turning point in that once that happened, I think it really did just get me to that you know, level where I could you know, start to make a living from it. And you've built a, a business around Beetlecam, right? Can you talk a little bit about yeah. what that is and what's unique about it? Yeah, so yeah, it's this remote control buggy. Basically, as I was finding myself as a wildlife photographer, trying to figure out where I fitted into things, you know, I was obviously trying to take images that people would notice. And so very quickly realizing you know, I've got to show people things they haven't seen before. And something I was trying to do a lot of at the time, so this is like 2007 sort of time, is uh, get closer, use a wide angle lens to to get a more intimate perspective, showing more environment. And it wasn't something that was being done a lot back then. A lot of, most of wildlife photography was very much telephoto with a shallow depth field and shallowed field of view. Mm -hmm. And so it did, when I started taking these photos, they really did sort of strike a chord with me, uh, but also other people saw them and they were something a bit different and something with a bit more impact. And initially I was achieving that by just crawling up to whatever animal I could. So that was things like penguins or meerkats. So pretty unthreatening species where if I got too close, I wasn't going to die. But I was shocked at how close meerkats would let you get to it. Like there's yeah. some photos of you literally yeah, yeah. like two feet away from a those, pod Yeah, of so those particular ones have been habituated over many generations actually by researchers. And so from the moment they come out of the den for the first time, they get used to people. And so, yeah, they they just see us as part of the landscape, that, that those particular meerkats. And if you're still and you don't do anything, you know, those sudden movements, uh, they'll even climb on you to get a better look, uh, you know, of their surroundings if if uh, if you're really careful. So, yeah, yeah, it's, they, they, it's funny because I always associate it when you see the wildlife films of meerkats, it's always that they're underground and popping their head out looking for predators. Yeah. And I always just assume that they were like the most anxiety ridden species yeah. of all time, kind of like popping their heads out of ground. They and are, hoping yeah. They can come outside. And if you come across meerkats that aren't used to humans, they are completely, you know, there was the meerkats I came across in Northern Namibia. And before I could even see them in binoculars, or at the point I could just about tell what they were in binoculars, they were already running away from me. Oh, really? Yeah. And so, yeah, those ones are pretty paranoid. But then these ones in Botswana that I got very close to, yeah, they've learned humans aren't threatened. But yeah, they see a bird of prey or a jackal or something, then it's a different story. So right. I guess it's just, yeah, they're the pretty smart animals. They, they know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you were taking these wide angle shots of the meerkats and the penguins yeah. and that kind of led to, it's essentially yeah, so like, a, like a remote control vehicle, right? That you put a camera in yeah. and it drives up yeah. to. The so bigger... yeah, my passion being in Africa, I wanted to figure out how I could get these shots in Africa and the logical solution. Uh, for me without risking my life was to try and yeah build a remote control camera buggy basically which would get my camera close and I didn't really know 
if it would work out, whether the animals would destroy it or run away from it or mm-hmm. whatever. But I figured to try and get this different perspective, it was worth trying. So that was back in 2009. I did that for the first time and we didn't get a huge amount. Um, got some elephants um, and I got one sequence of photos of a lion uh, before the camera got chewed. And uh, I, <laughs> that was the only sequence I got that trip. But the few photos I did get from that trip did do really well. Like people you know, published, they were published widely. People were really connected with them and uh, had a lot of impact. So I knew I was onto something, Uh, but it was actually a couple of years before I actually returned to the concept, built a new version of the Beetle Cam, which was actually um, a bit more robust and lion proof and went out again specifically to focus on lions. So this is now 2011 and uh, did a whole sequence of lion photos, uh, which again did really well. And since then, I've kept coming back to Beetlecam for various projects just to get that different perspective. Um, so um, the elephant project, my, my most recent one, uh, mm-hmm. I did a lot with Beetlecam, you know, getting the perspective where their tusks are coming down towards the camera, really close, wide angle. That perspective really accentuates their size. You know, you really oh, yeah. feel like they're towering over you uh, when you when you photograph them from the ground like that. So, yeah, it was a big part of that project. My project before that, a focus of mine has been um, really using um, the latest digital cameras. So this was a project probably started in 2012, 13. Uh, Suddenly we had these cameras with really incredible high ISO performance and Mm -hmm. we could start photographing animals at night in ways that we couldn't do before. And so I got really excited about this and started thinking, how can I use these cameras to to take photos of wildlife at night that haven't been done before and so what i wanted to do was photograph them with stars behind in the sky right and in order to do that i had to get low that same perspective so i could get the sky behind them so again beetle chem came came into its own there with being able to get my camera down low look up at animals and expose the, the stars behind them so yeah it's a it's a sort of pretty handy tool to have when i when i need that low down perspective well i think it's a perspective that hadn't been really seen as much in the wildlife photography yeah. space because the only other way that that angle was captured and before I knew about the beetle cam I always just assumed it was like a remote camera trap but the difficulty yeah. with the remote camera traps is you just don't have the control over it and also yeah. if if for some reason it comes out blurry or like the animal's just not in frame I mean yeah. you get one shot at it whereas yeah. with this it essentially gives you the ability to have consistent attempts at taking camera yeah, so trap style photos exactly so for certain for the right species it's um yeah it's much more effective i guess than camera traps but then the problem with it it can only really be used with quite bold animals who aren't going to be frightened by an unfamiliar object moving through the grass but mm-hmm. anything that's prey is programmed to avoid you know anything like that so i could use it for the predators the big carnivores elephants um yeah buffalo a few animals but certainly not everything and so that's actually then led me i wanted to get this perspective with more creatures so actually i then uh started using camera traps a lot more as well and so i use camera traps to get this close-up perspective of uh, the more elusive shyer skittish creatures as well do you find that with the beetle cam that the interactions usually come from the animal being interested in the beetle cam or is it more that you they just you just drive it around until you get a good angle of them yeah, so the way I've used it has definitely evolved over the years. To start with, um, I was yeah just seeing what I could get and I was using it with things like lions that were very inquisitive and playful and would come up and come and investigate it. So I got a lot of eye contact and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. 
on the elephant project more recently i was trying to keep it um you know i just keep it still next to a water hole let the animals you know basically get used to it and start to ignore it and then i was getting my shots that way so i wanted a much more sort of candid um type of feel to the shot so not the same sort of eye contact and that sort of thing so um yeah the way i use it sort of can then determine the sort of if there is interaction or you know if i give the animals long enough to get used to it then yeah and leave it still so it's not moving you know they forget about it and then i you know they go on about go on doing whatever they're doing uh, at the water hole and i'm just yeah they're snapping photos um so yeah i'm trying to I've, I've been using it a bit differently in this last project yeah, and I'll, I'll link a lot of those specific photos in the show notes. So if people want to check out what the wide angle lens looks like and kind of get a little more perspective on this conversation, definitely check it out because the photos are unbelievable. Yeah, thanks. I want to talk a little bit, obviously you've traveled the world documenting different species of animals, but it seems like the bulk of your work has been in Africa. Is One, is that correct? But two, is there a reason that you're drawn to Africa more than other geographies? Yeah, so I think when I was getting started, I was drawn to traveling as much as possible, seeing as much as possible, going as many different places as possible. So that's really when a lot of my images from elsewhere in the world uh, came about. Uh, then in 2012, we had the opportunity to move to Zambia for a year, my wife and I. And that was a whole year where I just focused on my photography and um, just spent most of the time in South Luangwa National Park, I really took a body of work that was much deeper than anything I'd done before. And from that year, a few things happened. But I guess the main things were that uh, I started making a lot of contacts in Africa, which then opened doors to new projects. Right. And the sort of projects where I could get access that, you know, wouldn't be possible if I was just, um, you know, flitting around from country to country. So for sure, uh, building these relationships, getting to know, uh, you know, researchers, conservationists, tourism operators, getting to know them well enough that I could then get access and and undertake photo projects that, uh, you know, would allow me to capture something that hadn't been seen before. Uh, those sort of opportunities really did start opening up. And so I found myself traveling back to Africa more and more as, you know, and it just becomes this snowball effect where mm -hmm. the more you do there, the more opportunities there are. So each time I go, I end up thinking of another three projects that I want to do next in, in the similar area. And so um yeah it, it really is a case of as you know the more you sort of focus on an area i think you know you find more to photograph there it's not a case of you know running out and so um that's one reason i mean i do i think my style of photography and also just i love being in these wide open wilderness areas where i don't see another car all day and africa there are those places where you, i can still go to get that and so that's that's for me what i what i love about being out in africa well, yeah. what kind of something that I really appreciate about your work is the fact that you can tell you've spent such a long period of time there because some of or a good chunk of your work has been done with species that I think are often overlooked by people who travel there and just go because if you're in Africa, you got to get the lions and the elephants. But if you're spending a lot yeah. of time there, like I've seen you do deep conservation work with things like painted dogs and Ethiopian wolves. And yeah. that's something I'd like to dig in a little bit more about because oftentimes, even on the podcast, like it's just a species of animals that are beautiful, unique animals, but nobody really talks about too, too frequently. So yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about your conservation work with the painted, yep. maybe we'll start with painted dogs and then move into the Ethiopian yeah. wolves? Yeah. Maybe better start the other way around. The okay. wolves were my first, probably my first 
big like conservation focused project. So this was back in 2011, and actually, um, I teamed up with a with a photographer from San Francisco. Uh, her name's Rebecca Jackrell. She sadly passed away now, but um, she uh, she had this passion for doing conservation focused uh, uh, photography, but she hadn't done much in Africa. And I'd obviously done quite a lot in Africa and we met in London and um, she basically said, you know, I want to do this project on Ethiopian wolves uh, because, you know, they're a little, they're pretty much under photograph, you know, not many people have photographed them. They're pretty much neglected and yet they're, you know, there's only 500 of them left and they're this incredibly unique animal. They're a wolf in Africa. There's no other animal like them. Their closest relative is grey wolves in uh, in Europe. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, they oh, wow. came down in the last ice age, came down into Africa, and then they, as it sort of dried out and got got warmer, they got marooned in these high altitude areas. And so there's just these few pockets where you get these um, wolves in this Afro-Alpine habitat. And yeah, about 500 left. They're you know, under massive threat from things like rabies, canine distemper, um, just habitat loss. Um, 500 well. across Africa? Yeah, oh, 500 wow. individuals. Yeah, that so bad. about yeah between four and five hundred, and it sort of fluctuates. They have a rabies outbreak; it crashes down to you know four hundred. When we were there, I think it was about four hundred, and then it sort of recovers, and then a few years later, there's another outbreak. So, um, what we did is we raised the money for that that um, exhibition uh, expedition on Kickstarter. Kickstarter was really new; I think it had only been around about a year or so, and people were still figuring out how to how to use it really or what you know what it was good for uh, but what we did was we raised about ten thousand dollars through kickstarter that paid basically um, for the cost of us spending about a month out there um, and we were able to basically give a chunk of that to uh, the ethiopian wolf conservation program who were able to then lend us a vehicle and a guide and things to take us out so that we could focus on on uh, photographing these wolves and then after that, we put the photos together into a book and donated the proceeds from that book to the Ethiopian Wolf oh, Conservation Program. And so, what we were able to do, it took a few, you know, it took a while to, you know, to put the book together and then to sell enough. But basically, we were able to take that ten thousand dollars from the Kickstarter campaign. And I can't, I can't remember exactly how much we've donated now, but it's you know, more than double that is what we've then been able to give back to the Ethiopian Wolf Conservation wow. uh, Program in terms of donations from selling the book and prints and things like that. And obviously, that ignores the sort of awareness that the book's been able to raise and yeah they, that's that, incredible they've, yeah they've been able to use the book uh you know to give away to donors and that sort of thing so yeah it really gave me a taste of uh, what would be possible and that was quite i guess a yeah maybe a, a small level project but uh but yeah it really sort of showed me you know by teaming up with these conservationists as a photographer what i get out of it is access and you know using you know, relying on their knowledge and their understanding of these species i'm able to then get shots which i wouldn't be able to get otherwise and then they get the images they can use and hopefully i can help them you know with whatever goals they've got whether it's raising awareness or mm -hmm. you know trying to raise funds and that sort of thing yeah well so, i would imagine yeah, they're incredibly elusive animals especially if there's only four or five hundred of them to actually be able to find you yeah. kind of need that grassroots know-how what was yeah. that experience like like how did you yeah. find them I mean, Are, is there the same predatory fear that you would have with like a gray wolf in your well, not so much they these these wolves they basically evolved to specialize in hunting rodents this afro-alpine habitat has an incredible um 
biomass just of rodents per square kilometer. And so these wolves basically hunt mole rats, which are about this big. Uh, sorry, I don't know if people aren't watching the video, then they're about uh, the size of a, I guess like a chihuahua or something, but without okay. without the long legs, um, down to these little mice and rats and things. And that's all they eat. They'll you know, eat like 10 a day or something. Uh, so they're not like hunting big animals. So I don't, you know, you don't feel any sort of threat from them. But yeah, they're pretty skittish. And most of the year, if you come across them, you're not going to get, you know, within 100 meters, you know, even 600, 800 millimeter lens range. Would, you know, they're not close enough. So the only way to get the photos that we got of them is to uh, go when they're denning. And that's the only time you can be sure they're going to be in this particular place. And mm -hmm. so that's when you can then go there, wait and get get the close-up shots. So uh, obviously the Ethiopian Wolf Conservation Program, they're the ones who know where the dens are and, you know, know what's going to be, you know, responsible in terms of how close we can get and not disturbing them and that sort of thing. So by working with them, we were able to have access to the dens, get the shots we needed, but also obviously use their knowledge to make sure what we were doing was not going to be to the detriment of the wolves and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's... Uh, that's what we did. We went out uh, when they were denning, spent about five weeks with a, four different packs. And we'd sort of try and time when we were with, e with each pack with when their pups were coming out. So uh, they, they were all at sort of slightly different stages. So we basically were able to get different age pups as they were growing up and sort oh, of wow. learning how to be Ethiopian wolves. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a, yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, it always amazes me how much people who spend a lot of time in certain areas can develop that know-how. I mean, a good example is I spent some time in Yellowstone a couple of years ago yeah. and you could always see that there'd be certain people pulled over on the side of the road with these long telescopes, like things that you couldn't even use as a camera. Yeah. And I'd be like, Hey, what are you looking at? And he's like, Oh, I found a wolf denning over here. You want to come look mm -hmm. at it? And I'd be like, yeah. And I'd look in his telescope and it was, I mean, a mile away. And it was like the smallest blur of like, you could barely even make out that it was a wolf. I was like, how did you wow. even come close to finding that? And it's strictly just because they know where the dens are and they can kind yeah, of yeah. get what they can get. There's no way you would be panning across the landscape and be like, oh, there's one. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, too, yeah. it's too much of a needle in a haystack. Yeah. And that's why the local knowledge and the local contact is so key, whether it's a good guide or conservationists, the researchers who understand these animals better than I could ever understand them, you know, by working with them, that's, that's the only way to sort of, yeah, get, get a lot of these shots. What is the issue with rabies? Is it, or canine distemper? Is it something where they come in yeah. contact with feral dogs or something? Yeah. Like so yeah, they're, they're in this national park, say, and they're the villagers all around the national park, but there's also people coming into the park to collect firewood, that sort of thing. And they have dogs. I mean, they they keep dogs, but really the dogs are there to fend for themselves. They have to find their own food and, you know, they just wander off, go where they want. And yeah, these dogs, you know, often have you know, things like rabies or canine distemper and they, you know, very regularly come into contact with the Ethiopian wolves. And so it's very easy for the disease to, to, yeah, uh, transfer to get over. transmitted. And then these wolves are very sociable. You know, they're pack animals just like gray wolves. And so if one wolf, in the pack gets it you know they very quickly the whole pack can have it and so they uh yeah you, they, you can lose a whole pack to, to it in a, in you know, a matter of weeks so what the ethiopian wolf conservation program have been doing is uh they've had this uh, vaccination program so they vaccinate again i don't know the exact number it's about ten thousand dogs a year 
in the surrounding communities they vaccinate. And then when we were out there, they were just starting this trial to vaccinate the wolves themselves. And it was actually an oral vaccine. So they would put down some meat with mm-hmm. the vaccine in it. And then the wolves would eventually come and eat the meat. And while we were there, they'd, they'd just done this and they were then capturing the wolves, taking blood samples to then test if they were getting antibodies to rabies. And actually that uh, proved to be successful. So now oh, that's great. they are uh, you know, giving some protection. They found it actually is very sort of effective at protecting them. I don't know if they've got a solution for distemper yet, but certainly for rabies, they're able to administer these oral vaccines to the wolves uh, just through some meat laced with the vaccine. And that then gives them some protection. So yeah, the last, the last uh, outbreak was distemper. And I don't know, I don't know if they've sort of come up with a solution to that, but and is that yeah, a similar they, they, issue with the painted dogs? I didn't even really yeah. know what a painted dog was until I started digging into your work a little bit. They're okay. amazing looking animals. They're like, oh, yeah. they almost awesome. like black and yellow spotted. How yeah. big are they as big as like a normal, like a German shepherd or something like that? Possibly. I mean, they're much slighter, but actually mm-hmm. their size, they probably are similar size. And certainly their jaws are probably, yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty powerful jaws so yeah some their head is probably uh, the size of a german shepherd just less fluffy but then their bodies are pretty pretty skinny they can just run all day uh they're sort of built for stamina um but yeah they're really cool their, their coloration actually varies quite a lot across africa so they're found all the way from namibia and south africa you know all the way up i've seen them as in kenya but i think they go mm-hmm. a bit further than that but across that whole range there's uh, between three three thousand and five thousand, something like that, individuals. So, uh, not that many across this huge area, and so they're very fragmented. And the thing with them is they have these huge territories, and they don't really do that well in places where there's a lot of lions or a lot of um, hyenas or a lot of you know other predators to compete with. So they often get pushed out of protected areas where mm-hmm. there are these big densities of lions, particularly and end up roaming these huge areas in and amongst communities. And often these are places where uh, people will be setting snares to catch bushmeat, antelopes, small antelopes, that sort of thing. So because they're covering so much ground, snaring is a big problem. Uh, They're also very susceptible to dog diseases that are transmitted from domestic dogs, so rabies. Um, other things like roadkill and things, you know, in areas where there's busy roads. So there's a, quite a few threats to to them. Um, but yeah, they're in, they're amazing animals. They just run and run and run. So they have one of the highest uh, sort of percentage success rates when they embark on a hunt. They're more likely than any other predator in Africa Africa to actually catch that animal they're after. Oh, and wow. the reason is they just run after it until it's so exhausted it can't <laughs> run anymore, and they can keep going. So this one time I remember following them on a hunt and we had the the sort of, you know, the kilometer counter on the vehicle. So we could see how far we'd gone. We followed them 20 kilometers uh, until they made the kill. And that that was before breakfast, really. And then we followed, they, they sort of eat as fast as they can because they're paranoid about some other animal coming and uh, and stealing it. So they just wolf it down in the, in the matter of, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And then mm-hmm. they, at this time of year, they were denning. So then they just returned the way they came. And by lunch, they were back at the den. So they just did the equivalent of a marathon before lunch. <laughs> and uh, that was just one kill. And the next day, they'll just go off in a different direction, just keep running until they kill something and then come back. So they're incredible predators. Um, but 
yeah, they, they do have a lot of challenges, um, yeah, particularly in areas where there's a lot of lions. Have they been domesticated at all? Or no, Ethiopian no, they, wolves of those? No, I don't think, I don't know if anyone's tried with wolves, but I don't think, yeah, I think some attempts with painted dogs have been domesticated uh, to try and domesticate them, but yeah, they, they can't be tamed really. There was this one wolf that was, uh, this one painted dog that uh, it had been, I think, inbred or something. So it had short legs and it wasn't really fit to be out yeah. there breeding. So they had that one as a sort of ambassador animal. And it was one of the scariest animals I've seen because if you <laughs> got too close to it, it was just vicious. It had no fear of people. So yeah, they're not really uh, domesticatable, I don't think. Yeah, well, that's what I thought was interesting is um, I was talking to Russell McLaughlin, who does a lot of work in India. And yeah. he was talking about these, he fell in love with the doles, which are essentially like Indian dogs. Yeah. And yeah. <clears throat> he said they're virtually impossible to domesticate, whereas you, you look at them and they look much more like a dog than a wolf would. But the wolves mm. are really where all domestic dogs have come from because yeah, yeah. for some reason there's been that type of relationship that humans could establish with them that was impossible with yeah. things that just happen to be yeah. called dogs. No, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Why wolves would be domesticatable and wild dogs not. But I guess it's just, yeah, something maybe in their pack structure or something that, that makes it possible. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Kind of getting back to how I opened up the podcast, there was a breadth of things that I wanted to talk about, but I know we just couldn't go in depth into, but I made a list of three photos that I saw that I really just want to get a little bit more understanding as to kind of the story behind the photo. The okay. first were uh, the orangutans in Indonesia. Um, what was that experience like going yeah. into the forest, finding them, being able to photograph them? I'm obsessed with primates in general, particularly okay. orangutans. So I'd just love to hear a little bit more about that experience. Yeah, so that was quite a while ago now. That was before this sort of year in Zambia where I uh, really started focusing on Africa. So at that stage, I was traveling all over and trying to do as much as possible in Asia. And um, I wanted to do the orangutans and I wanted to go. I'd been to the north before, the Malaysia side, and it was a bit tame. So I wanted to go to the Indonesian side, Kalimantan, which is, a lot, you know, is a lot more wild feel, feeling. So there you basically charter a, a clotok. It's like this wooden boat with a really noisy engine that sort of chugs you up the river into the national park. <laughs> yeah. And you sleep on the boat and uh, you head into Tanjung Puting National Park. And they've got this uh, rehabilitation center there where they take um, orangutans that have maybe been orphaned by deforestation or taken out of the pet trade and try and rehabilitate them into the wild. And so you've got these orangutans in various stages of rehabilitation. Some are really tame, just hang around people all day. Some are like a second generation rehabilitated. So they are sort of semi-wild, but still pretty comfortable around humans because their parents are. And then you've got these wild orangutans as well, who are, you know, much harder to get close to. So yeah, you, you come across this whole sort of range of different orangutans, but it's a really cool place like yeah obviously just towering rainforest either side you have other really interesting species like the proboscis monkeys and yeah there's these certain orangutans you can get very close to and then the other ones more of a challenge some of these uh more wild ones as well how deep into the jungle did you go to find some of the more wild ones is it i'd imagine it's like a very dense remote area yeah and i wasn't there for that long so um basically it was a case of uh going up and down the river and the best chance really of finding them was to find them when they were near the river and then um 
you know, at that point getting shots of them. So uh, when I was sort of on foot, that was nearer the re- rehabilitation center where you're getting those uh, rehabilitated orangutans and they're sort mm-hmm. of uh, ones that are more comfortable around people. And then the more wild ones, I was actually photographing from the boats mostly. I always thought it was interesting. I, I spent some time at the Lanai Cat Sanctuary in Hawaii, which is essentially it's a sanctuary that they built because a lot of the feral cats were predating on critically endangered bird species. So instead of okay. trapping, sterilizing, and then letting them back out in the wild or just euthanizing them, they put them all into uh, a sanctuary. So there's like 600 cats in this small. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's actually like, <laughs> it's surprising. Like for a smaller enclosure with 600 cats, it actually feels a lot more open and like less claustrophobic than you would think. But what I thought was interesting is kind of what you were alluding to with the orangutans is that even a single generation difference of habituation to humans like drastically changes their behavior. That I always mm-hmm. think it's interesting that you could have this wild orangutan that needs to be habituated looking at its same species who may be two or three generations habituated yeah. and still is like completely afraid of humans or doesn't want anything to do with them. He must think yeah. that the the habituated ones are crazy or something like that yeah i know i i don't know what they think i mean they're obviously pretty intelligent so they probably do figure out from that uh yeah that maybe humans aren't so bad but uh yeah the, the some of the wild ones you don't get don't get close to at all so yeah they they sort of have to i guess learn it for themselves and then to keep jumping uh, i know my transitions are horrible but i want to get to these things the the panda photo um oh yeah Pandas, I feel like, are something that a lot of wildlife photographers don't have in their arsenal. It seems to me like there's not a clear uh, path to being able to photograph a a panda, particularly in the wild. I mean, I know yours was in the wild. Can you talk about how that happened? So that was really lucky, really, in that this basically this national park in China where these wild pandas live for a short period of time, a few years only. It opened up to tourism. And so I was lucky in that I realized, you know, I saw this opportunity, you know, you could go there, you could just get a local guide, go there and go look for these pandas. And so, yeah, I went out there and did it because, yeah, pandas for me was a, an animal, you know, bucket list animal. I just wanted to see them for myself. So I did this trip. And then a year or so after that, they shut it off again. And ever since then, it's pretty much been off limits unless you've got oh, some really? serious connections. So, I was very lucky with that, that I was able to get out there, get those shots and yeah, did it at the right time. But that was amazing. I was basically there for a couple of weeks and I had this tracker and this guide um, and the tracker just knew knew this place like the back of his hand. And we went to two different areas and basically we were trekking all day. It was hard trekking. These, these pandas have basically been pushed into areas that people don't want to go. So they're really steep sided mountains that mm-hmm. people don't want to grow food on, don't want to live on. So they, that's the areas where there's still the forest that they need. And so you're walking all day up and down these crazy steep uh, hillsides. And we're basically looking for signs of fresh panda activity because they don't get a lot of nutrients from there their diet of bamboo they're basically eating all day and uh, a lot of what they eat just goes straight through them so if you're near a panda you basically see a lot of uh, fresh panda poo and you see a lot of a lot of bamboo that's been chomped you know snipped off as they're eating so you're basically walking all day looking for signs of fresh panda activity and then when you find it you know there's probably one not too far away and so that's the area you then 
you know, sort of look more co closely in. And these pandas, they make a lot of noise when they're eating. When you do get near them, they're basically just snapping bits of bamboo off. You can hear them a mile <laughs> away. So right. you sort of do know when you, you get close. And so over the course of that uh, couple of weeks, um, we got close to a few wild pandas, but there was this one particular one. We were on top of this ridge and he was a young male. And he probably had become fairly habituated to researchers. So he wasn't that skittish, unlike some of the other ones. And we were basically on a path and on top of this ridge. And it was by far the easiest route this panda could take if he wanted to get anywhere. So uh, we were on the path and he just came up on the path in front of us and he decided the path was his and he just walked straight along the path towards <laughs> us. And we had to get off the path and he just came past me. You know, if I'd wanted to and reached out, I could have touched him. And no I just, way. Yeah, came that, that close. close to a wild panda. It was unbelievable. And yeah, I probably spent, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes with him before he went off into the, you know, down the steep sided uh, hill slope. But uh, yeah, the, we later found there was another male panda in the area. And I think he was kind of so distracted by figuring out who this other male was that, yeah, we were definitely not a priority for him. And he just, uh, yeah basically let, let us get super close to a wild panda so yeah that, i was very lucky with that experience and that's certainly yeah one of the the sort of highlights for me of my career and probably something that yeah just a case of right place right time in in many different ways yeah that was a wild photo because i follow every wildlife <laughs> instagram account i possibly can and you never see pandas and if you do they're usually at that breeding facility the research um, yeah like a research yeah. facility yeah. and I saw it in one, not only was it a wild panda, but it was also wide awake and like not just yeah. sleeping or like bedded or something to that effect that I, well, now I know, yeah. I guess they close off a lot of the areas now to, to tourism to be able to take those photos. But I saw that I was like, yeah. oh my God, that's, that's the experience yeah. of a lifetime. It, it wasn't crazy. And I was just doing that as a regular tourist, really just uh, hiring a local guide and a local tracker. But yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people have seen that and you know said, "How can we do that?" But unfortunately, they did. They just shut it off completely. So who knows? Maybe they'll open it up again. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you think? I know you said unfortunately. Do you like, like? Where do you find? I feel like it's such a tough balance to strike between. Obviously, that's such an amazing experience, and it also provide would provide so much funding to be able to get tourism yeah. into the forest to be able to to view these animals but at the same time there's also something about the encroachment thing that is obviously an ongoing fear about there's the downside to ecotourism one it brings in money but it also brings in the encroachment of people into wild habitats do you yeah. what are your thoughts on ecotourism in general and yeah. and where to find that balance i know it's very it, it's probably very specific case to case yeah i mean i think pandas is an interesting example in that i think the China, they don't really need the money to protect the pandas. If they want to protect pandas, they can make it happen. But a lot of places, that's not the case. And so I think the other interesting sort of comparison would be the mountain gorillas in Rwanda, where mm -hmm. it's very similar in that they're sort of marooned in these in these you know mountain forests in the Virunga volcanoes. Um, but there, yeah, the governments don't have the resources that the Chinese government have to protect them. And so for them, e ecotourism is absolutely... The only reason really I think they're still there is because they generate so much uh, revenue through ecotourism and that's what's protecting them. That's what's incentivizing local people to protect them because, you know, it's so important to the local economy. And then this week, the news that mountain gorillas are no longer critically endangered comes out. So yeah, it shows yeah. that it's 
really has turned the tide there. And so, yeah, I think that's where it's done right. Well, in some ways it's done right. So the way they do it there in order to minimize um, disturbance to the, to the, uh, to the gorillas, because obviously that is the potential downside of ecotourism, you know, it's very well regulated there. So one group will get visited, um, you know, once a day by a group of no more than eight tourists and you can spend a maximum of one hour with them. So these gorillas, they get a bit disturbed for an hour a day, but the rest of the day they are, you know, left to their own devices. And so really it's pretty minimal disturbance. It certainly doesn't affect, you know, their ability to feed or get right. on with their lives. And, you know, it just, you know, it generates crazy money for, uh, for their protection, their protection for yeah. paying. Yeah. So I think that's done right. Obviously, if they were being harassed, you know, every hour of daylight that they're awake, you know, that would be a different matter and they wouldn't be able to get on. And there's other places you go in Africa uh, where there are, you know, much fewer controls and you do see the sort of downside of tourism. But I think when it's done right, it's, you know, it's often, you know, when it comes down to it, people, local people who are the people who are the most important in the fight to save their local wildlife, sure. you know, they're only going to be, you know, if they're struggling to to get by anyway, you know, they're only going to be incentivized to protect something if it's worth more to them alive than dead. And so 100%, if yeah. they can make your money out of these gorillas through the, you know, working in lodges and that sort of thing, then obviously it makes sense for them. But if they get nothing out of it and they can make a quick buck by chopping down a tree and, you know, selling it for firewood or something, then they're obviously going to take that route if they've got no other options. So for that point of view, often tourism, I think is the only way or the best way by far to, uh, to make it, you know, make economic sense for the local stakeholders. Yeah. And I think to even expand on that, in an increasingly urbanized world, uh, I think a big problem that we're having is we just have such a disconnect from wildlife and the natural world in general yeah. that being able to offer people the experience to get out of the cities and actually interact or interface with these wildlife creatures that typically were reserved to planet Earth or something th yeah. something to that effect is really important because it shows people that they're real and they're majestic and they're worth saving, you know? Yeah. And I think, yeah, obviously if people can have the opportunity to see them, it's um, yeah, just amazing for people. I think one of the problems that there is with things like this gorilla experience is that it is so expensive. It really only the, you know, people with a lot of money can even afford to do it. And so a lot of people who often are people that maybe live closer to nature and perhaps have more opportunity in their life to maybe, undertake conservation actions you know those are the people that are priced out of seeing gorillas and mm -hmm. things so i think there is a bit of a problem in that yeah sometimes the people that could most benefit from seeing these animals aren't the people that can afford to do it so a lot of places sort of do try and address that by you know for example in south luango where i was in zambia a lot of the lodges uh basically fund a sort of school bus to go out get school children from the local communities oh, and take cool. them on safari so that they yeah. can see these animals so yeah if people can be yeah and the right people can be brought in to see it then i think yeah it can inspire this love of the natural world and that's obviously a big thing and that's really i guess as a photographer that's often what i'm trying to do is take images that show people these animals and inspire some sort of you know uh feeling towards them and hopefully inspire people to want to protect them yeah and i think there's also the 
there's always that grass is always greener mentality, right? Where people always tend to gravitate towards animals that are exotic or really hard to find or far away from where they are because they haven't seen them at, at all. But I, I really believe that if you take the time to appreciate and understand the behaviors of animals that live in your own backyard, it's something that you can interface with more regularly and, and significantly yeah. less expensively. I mean, even when you start to understand the biomechanics of a hummingbird or a black bear or a grizzly bear or anything, yeah. even some of the more elusive stuff like a mountain lion that I could find in America, um, it's certainly yeah. things that I, I, I always use the example of if squirrels were as rare as koalas, like people love koalas. You go over to yeah, yeah. Australia and see them and they're these amazing things. I think squirrels, like if you just look at it, if they were as rare as a koala or they lived only in Australia, people would think they're just equally as amazing. So yeah, I think sometimes exactly. you got to just remove that desensitization you or that you have yeah. to your own local species. And often the locals, like some of the best photo projects I've seen are of local species in that it people have the access and the means to be able to spend all year with these animals and just focus right. on them and the longer you spend photographing an animal the more creative you have to get because you get the easy shots and then you have to start thinking creatively to get something you haven't already got you spend more time understanding the animal you sort of from that point of view can sort of seek out behaviors that are more interesting so really those are the best subjects are the ones that you can revisit again and again and again and you know once you think you can't take any more photos of it that's when you have to get creative and that's how you sort of take your photography to the next level. Yeah. Well, I mean, bringing it back to what you said really launched you into a new category in wildlife photography is when you created this new ability to photograph animals and it means yeah. that had never been done before through the beetle cam. And you really have to be able to get creative with it because people have taken close-ups of mountain yeah. gorillas with a telephoto lens. Like that's, that's happened. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's yeah. very hard to find a unique angle to that. Whereas yeah. if you could spend every single day out in the backyard with, with, some white-tailed deer or something like that, you could probably find a unique way to exactly to, to yeah, express yeah. them. Definitely. Uh, the third and last photo that I wanted to get into a little bit were the the macaques that kind of hang out in those hot springs in Japan. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you provide a little background as to their behavior and how you found them? Yeah. So that again was one of these trips where I was in my phase of exploring as much as possible. And so I was only with them for like a day or so, but uh, and this was actually quite a while ago. So it's before, since then, a lot more has been done with them and there are a lot more, you know, now you go there and there's photographers everywhere. But back then we were the only, uh, me and my brother went and we were the only uh, photographers there. And uh, yeah, basically these macaques, they um, live in and around these geothermal hot springs. And when it's cold, they discover that it's quite nice to take a warm bath. So they will get into <laughs> these hot springs and just sit there um until i guess till they get hungry or something and have to get out but they'll sit there as long as as long as possible mostly and so yeah you get these uh the this whole family this troop of uh macaques um in the hot springs uh they you, you can tell they don't want to get out so they just uh, hang around there and uh you can get pretty close and uh photograph them with all this you know it's cold air so the hot water's just steaming and so you can get these really atmospheric shots of these of these monkeys in the uh, in the steaming water. I always think it's funny that they're so cute too, and the fact that they like bundle up together. They're almost like like homies. Like they love like wrapping yeah. their arms around each other and like yeah. just like hanging out in the hot tubs all day yeah, long. Yeah, they 
they don't seem to like the cold, which is funny given how cold it is in those mountains. But yeah, they, <laughs> they like, they, or they're really fluffy as well. So yeah, they, they look pretty cuddly. What elevation is it at? Is it like a pretty steep hike up there? Um, it's a bit of a hike. Yeah. So you take a, I can't quite remember now, it was a while ago, but you take a train and then a, a vehicle and then a, a trek. But yeah, it must be pretty, it must be pretty high, but I, I yeah. can't remember. I can't remember the exact altitude. So I want to head into our last segment, which is kind of my rapid fire questions. Um, okay. And just kind of get your quick thoughts on a, on a few things. Uh, what would be okay. your favorite animal that would be somewhat unexpected that people, like not one of the, the top 20 animals in the world that people tend to typically point to? Okay. Well, do wild dogs count? Uh, for me, they're sort of rock stars, yeah, yeah. but not a lot of people. Yeah, I love wild dogs. For me, rock stars. That's so, a that's a cool. Yeah, no. So ro- the uh, wild dogs, like, there was this phase in the two thousands where I was going to Africa a fair bit, and wild dogs were like top of my list. And I went to a few places just to see them, and I didn't find them. And so they sort of got kept getting elevated in my mind as this <laughs> animal I wanted to find. And it wasn't until that year in Zambia, where it's quite a good area for the wild dogs, but it still took me three months before I saw them. Uh, so three months where I was really every day, they, you know, I was asking people, you know, have you seen the wild dogs anywhere? That sort of thing. And eventually after three months, I found them and it had been then, that was what, 2012. So I'd been, no, 2000. Yeah. So I'd been doing it almost 10 years without seeing them at that point. So when I did finally see them, it was such a massive, um, you know, rush and it's so exciting. And ever since then, I've never really lost that feeling whenever I see wild dogs. Yeah. It always is kind of chance encounter because they do cover so much ground you know if you hear they've been seen in this area in the morning you know you go back and they could be miles away by that point so always bumping into them is a bit of a hit and miss thing so it always does feel really lucky when I do see them and so for me yeah I think wild dogs will always be special for that for that 10 years that's crazy how how big are the packs they usually travel in is it like um, five to six or can they get bigger than that yeah they can get bigger than that mostly the ones I've seen, yeah, five, six, that sort of number. But I think they can be as many as 20. And uh, they have quite a few pups each year. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, at the end of the day, quite fragile animals. So yeah, there's quite a high uh, mortality rate. But oh. yeah, um, yeah, in areas they're doing well, they can get quite big. But yeah, last in Savo, I came across a couple of packs. One was only had three in, and then the other one had five in, something like that. How about the best moment you've ever had as a wildlife photographer where you kind of were in the present moment being like, I can't believe that I get to do this for a living. <laughs> oh, I think there's too many of those to count really. But uh, yeah, like that first time I saw the wild dogs, the first time I saw the that elephant with the massive tusks. Mm-hmm. Um, let me think of one I haven't said. Okay, so there's this one particularly special moment I remember. I was in Zambia in this place called Busanga Plains and it was at the coldest time of year and it's actually gets really cold there so much so that you get frost on the ground in the morning which in Africa is quite unusual mm-hmm. and the other sort of in sort of I guess exciting thing about this place is the lions there are really impressive because it is cold they're pretty bulky they have really lustrous manes and so I'd heard about the male lion in this area being really handsome and really impressive and so I was desperate to see him and went to sleep and then during the night I could hear this lion roaring so I knew he was somewhere <laughs> around so got up the moment it, the, the sky started to get a bit light got up and went out to look for him and then because it was cold 
this the, the whole landscape was blanketed in mist and as the sun came up the whole all the mist just turned this incredible color of orange and then silhouetted against this mist was this amazing lion that, uh, that I'd come to see. And so that was a pretty special moment. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. How about the uh, scariest moment? Has there ever been a moment that you feel like you've kind of crossed the line and might have been a little too close to con- contact or close for comfort? Often, often in the moment, I don't feel fear. It's sometimes looking back on a situation where you think, oh, that was a bit dodgy. You know, I feel much less safe walking around a, a city street at night in a dodgy mm-hmm. part of town than I'd ever do in the wild. But yeah, there's been a few occasions. Probably the, probably the one I th- think about the most often would be I was tracking rhinos on foot, black rhinos, and they're pretty grumpy animals. They, uh, yeah, they really don't like other creatures, really. And so <laughs> I, was, I was with the, <laughs> the anti-poaching scouts who go out and find these rhinos. This was in North Luangwa in Zambia. So they go out every day and find a different rhino just to check up on them. And so I was basically shadowing them and we were after this particularly grumpy female rhino. And uh, when we got close to her, she was sort of bimbling away from us feeding and she was just, we, we only had a view of her backside. And so the scouts, they were aware that I wanted to get photos. So one of them just made a clicking noise to get her to look up. But she didn't just look up. She just turned and charged at the noise. Oh, wow. And everyone, you know, the scouts that were with me, they just, they were already 10 meters away, sprinting for the nearest tree to climb. They didn't, yeah, it's everyone for themselves in that situation. So I then dive into the closest tree and try and climb up it. But <laughs> it was such a small tree that it just bowed down under my weight. And so I was left hanging, you know, a meter off the ground with this angry rhino where I'd been tossing her head up and down. Um, yeah, so she's then charged back and forth a few times. They've got very bad eyesight. So fortunately, she didn't sort of figure out where I was before she, she left. But uh, yeah, that that was uh, quite a exhilarating experience. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> favorite book and documentary? Favorite book w- and wildlife documentary? Wildlife related. Okay. Yeah. okay, so documentary, I'll start with that. It would be the BBC Natural History Unit ones like Planet Earth. But probably before that, the one that I probably watched 100 times was The Trials of Life. It was like a early 90s David Attenborough okay. one uh, when I was, I guess, maybe at a formative time in my life growing up. And uh, yeah, just that really inspired me about the natural world. Um, so that's that's probably the one that's had the biggest impact. But yeah, more recently, like the Planet Earth and mm-hmm. Planet Earth 2 and that sort For of sure. ones, obviously, they're amazing. Amazing. And then book... Um, wildlife related um i love the the remembering wildlife series and i know you've had margot on yeah on the yeah. podcast so uh they're fantastic I actually yeah i saw her last night actually so oh, really? uh, yeah uh so yeah I, i'm a big supporter of that that sort of initiative and those books like yeah they've got to be in anyone's bookshelf i think 100 percent, and i'm linking them again i i link okay, them in pretty yeah. much every podcast uh in okay. the show notes so buy those books, 100% of proceeds go directly to supporting the conservation of those specific animals. And the last question, if you could place a billboard on the side of a major highway that disseminated one message to the world in 10 words or less, what would that be? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, yes. there's so many issues you could pick up on. Um, I think the biggest thing is 
I think the biggest frustration I have is that the people that could make the biggest difference, i.e. the politicians, are often, it's just not even on their agenda. And so I find it really frustrating when, you know, they could put in a regulation or a policy that could make a massive difference to so many different things. So I think getting our politicians to seriously, you know, make the environment a priority, I think could, you know, would would be the sort of biggest thing we can do. So yeah, getting our politicians to to care and yeah, whether that's just voting for the politicians who have environmental agenda or actually the other politicians, you know, just getting at them to to care more about these things and put these things on their agendas. Because I think, you know, that's without them doing big policy things, it's so hard to to really make a you know the sort of drastic you know, changes that need to be done to actually reverse a lot of these things like climate change or or whatever it is. 100%. And lastly, I'm going to link to all your social channels, website, et cetera. Um, and we'll be releasing this close to when the book is going to be released. You, ha- you don't have a hard date yet, correct? Or is there um, any anything else people should be aware of and yeah. uh, looking out for? Um, yeah, so the book, I guess, is that, yeah, um, it should be, I'll let you know via email. Okay. Anyway, I don't quite know. It could always be delayed. But um, anyway, it's at the printers now. So the book will be called Land of Giants. And uh, my website, if you just go to willbl.com, W-I-L-L-B-L.com, that's mm-hmm. a sort of landing page that then directs you to the various other things that I do. And so obviously the book will be mentioned there. And then you can see my photography website there and some of the other things I do there. And the book is mind-blowingly amazing. Uh, Definitely check it out. I was, I can't wait to get it in a non-digital form. Uh, I love your work. Really thankful for you taking the time to be on the podcast. Uh, Everybody else, if you're not following Will yet, you have to. Yes, you'll you'll thank me. Um, But anyways, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time. For all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc., please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.